1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Anthropology. I'm Siobhan McGee, one of the hosts of the channel, and today we'll be talking to Professor James Bilo from Miami University about his new book, Ark Encounter, The Making of a Creationist Theme Park, which was published by NYU Press earlier this year. James Bilo, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Great.
1: And James, I wonder if you could begin um, our interview by telling us a little bit about yourself.
0: (laughs) Yeah, sure. Um, well, uh, I, I grew up in Virginia, uh, uh, in the U.S., uh, sort of coastal Virginia area, Chesapeake Bay, and uh, stayed in Virginia for my undergraduate education uh, in, in anthropology at Radford University. I had some wonderful professors there, in particular uh, Melinda Wagner and Mary Lalone, uh, who I still keep in touch with. And then, from Radford, I went to Michigan State University uh, and did my MA and PhD in anthropology there in the great state of uh, or yeah the great state of Michigan and the great city of uh, East Lansing, Lansing. Um, and again had had tremendous mentors and advisors there. Uh, Frederick Roberts uh, was my main advisor, but also was incredibly uh, influenced by uh, David Dwyer and Mindy Morgan. Uh, Amy Deragatis in the Department of Religious Studies, uh, and and a few others as well. And then, yeah, so so that was my my education, and uh, from Michigan State, I ended up uh, here at Miami, and uh, that was supposed to be just a kind of a year to year engagement, but uh, it worked out well for everybody, and here I am, uh, a little over ten years later.
1: Great, and 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 what which courses do you teach
0: at Miami? So yeah, I get to teach a few different courses, uh, which is uh, something I really enjoy. The the variety. I get to teach some intro level courses um, that are kind of introductory, uh, introduction to anthropology and ethnography courses um, that we call uh, peoples of the world and cultural diversity in the United States. But I also get to teach some sort of upper-level thematic courses. I'm doing a class right now called Travelers, Migrants, and Refugees, for example. Uh, anthropology of Religion, of course. Um, what you know, I'm, I'm sort of trained as a cultural and linguistic anthropologist, so I get to do some linguistic anthropology courses like Language and Power. Uh, and I also get to do, uh, thankfully, some practicum courses where I'm really mentoring students in their own fieldwork projects. So, for example, we do a course here um, – uh, called The Ethnography of Communication, uh, which uh, students get to sort of design and conduct their own cultural and linguistic anthropology projects. So yeah, I get to teach a range of things, which is great.
1: That's fascinating. And, and one of the things that really struck me about Arc Encounter, uh, the book we're going to discuss in a second, is you've got a really useful um, appendix section at the back of the book where you are giving quite a lot of detail on your research methods.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm glad you I'm glad you noted the appendix uh, that was something that that wasn't part of the original plan of the book. Um you know, I think I think any ethnography uh, ought to address uh, the question of methodology very explicitly. Um and and many times that's that's very doable in the in the sort of the context of a section in the introduction or or in the preface. Um but for the case of this project, because it sort of went through several stages and had a number of twists and turns, um, uh, I thought that it deserved kind of its own section in the book and and, and its own um, kind of extended discussion. So I ended up writing this something like 5,000-word appendix that really charts the methodological journey of the project, uh, addresses some questions of research ethics, um, addresses some questions of research relationships. Um and and it also sort of emerged from you know as 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 you go to conferences and, and give talks you know the Q Q&A, and and A's are really insightful periods um, to see what 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 people really want to know about you know aside from what you decided to talk about and um, you know I, I kind of kept, started keeping track of the recurring questions that would pop up in those kind of Q and contexts and in many ways I I wrote the appendix as a response to those commonly received questions. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, that's really helpful both for people who are designing their research projects and um, people who are writing up their research. Um, so maybe we should go back to the the beginning, and I'd like to ask you, um, please, how did you come to write Arc Encounter? And and um, maybe you know, without wanting to preempt your response to that question, you could also uh, explain to people who don't know what Arc Encounter is.
0: Yeah, for sure. So. Um... Arc Encounter uh, is a creationist theme park uh, located in the US state of Kentucky, about 40 miles south of Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, It opened in July 2016, and it is a roughly $92 million uh, attraction, at least in its first phase. Uh, It has planned future phases. Um, It's located on about 800 acres. And the centerpiece of the park is a recreation of uh, Noah's Ark as depicted in Genesis, uh, and, and maybe to, more to the point, um, uh, depicted in, in the form of a literalist uh, reading of the book of Genesis. Um, So it, it, stretches a little over 500 feet long, uh, and it has a little over a hundred square thousand feet of themed exhibit space inside the arc. So that's that, that, you know, that finished product, um, is, is what, what's in Kentucky now and kind of what the, um, book was always leading up to. Um, but, uh, the book began so the park opened in 20, summer of 2016. But the project really, uh, for me, goes back to 2000, 2011, in the spring of 2011. So I, I tell a version of this story in the in the appendix, so I won't totally recount it here. Um, but I, I was finishing up another project. Um, and in December of 2010, uh, the ARC project was announced by Uh, The ministry that was connected with it, a creationist ministry called Answers in Genesis, um, that is also responsible for the Creation Museum, a $30 million attraction uh, in northern Kentucky. Uh, And so officials from Answers in Genesis, as well as uh, local political officials, and the governor of, of the state of Kentucky at the time, held this press conference in December 2010 announcing the ARC project. And when I first heard about it, I thought, you know, this, this sounds really fascinating. I'd been to the creation museum a couple of times. And my initial thought was, you know, I hope somebody does something, you know, on that with that, um, from a social scientific, uh, standpoint. Um, and so I thought about it for, for a couple of months, uh, and I got to thinking, well, maybe, maybe that somebody could be me. We'll see. I don't know. You know, I kind of wrestled with the idea for a bit, um, and one reason I wrestled with the idea is that you know the idea of, of designing a research project um, on creationism per se um, was never and is still not all that interesting to me. Um, uh, we sort of, as, as anthropologists uh, and as social scientists and as scholars, we sort of know uh, who creationists are. Um, in many ways, uh, the creationist movement hasn't changed all that much uh, as it's uh, as it's developed in the second half of the twentieth and early twenty first century. Um, but the idea of getting behind the scenes and the idea of tracing the production of a creationist theme park um, sort of from the backstage, that was a really intriguing idea. And so I thought, well, I'll contact them. I expect they'll say no. But if they don't, this could be really an anthropological story worth telling. And so in April of 2011, I uh, made a phone call. I left a message uh, and a, three or four weeks later, uh, I got a phone call back. Um, and I really uh, went through one gatekeeper before I was talking with uh, one of the founders of Answers in Genesis. And uh, at the time uh, I think was the CEO of the, uh, the arc project. And we had a a, a really you know, uh, sort of informative phone conversation. And I was asking him some questions, but really he was, he was interviewing me, um, to see whether or not, you know, he was going to open this door for me. And at the end of the conversation, he said, you know, this, this sounds, this sounds interesting. You know, we had ne- they had never been pitched that kind of idea before. Um, they're of course very used to journalists approaching them and asking to come, uh, and take pictures over the course of a day, but to have somebody propose following them for years on end, uh, was a different, a different thing. And he invited me down to the design studio, uh, and so, in October of two thousand and eleven, I made my first trip to the design studio uh, and this is where the the creative team who is in charge of um, conceptualizing and designing the park a uh, small team uh, four members at, at their core uh, and, and these are the folks that really form the heart of the book uh, and the heart of my fieldwork um, uh, they welcome welcomed me in. Uh, and i'd never been into a design studio before so just walking into the place for me uh was um uh you know sort of a vertigo inducing experience in the sense that you know i was surrounded by what i this this form of illustration that i came to understand as concept art um and it was just everywhere on the walls and there were maps everywhere and blueprints everywhere and it just seemed like an incredibly creative space and an incredibly busy space um and they gave me a tour that day and uh, I left uh, and sort of resumed, came back uh, and really, really began the fieldwork um, in earnest uh, a couple of weeks later, uh, sitting in, in the design studio with the team. And that went on for about two and a half years.
1: Well, and could I ask, um, you mentioned you, you had sort of one main gatekeeper and um, he was sort of used to attention from journalists. Mm-hmm. But uh, one of the things you were discussing was the difference uh, that it might make that you were doing ethnographic research. How, how did you sort of discuss this? With your interlocutors, with at um arc encounter, because quite often, um, you know, at first sight, what journalists do and what uh, social scientists do can be sort of similar.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. Thank you. Um, you know, I think I think at first they certainly, even though I, you know, I, you know, presented myself, you know, as an anthropologist, as an ethnographer, and you know, laid out for them what I hoped to do, um, and they agreed to that, of course. Um, I think they still sort of had me in that category, you know, of journalists um, just in the way they related to me. Uh, and one reason I say that is that I remember distinctly, I think it was about, um, uh, I don't remember exactly, but but a few months, maybe even six months into the research, uh, I showed up one day and the creative director looked at me and he said, James, you're back in this really sort of surprised tone. Uh, and, and it was sort of moments like that that I think, you know, it became explicit, you know, what, how they were thinking of me, but also it was a moment of transition where they started to see me as, as something else, something different. Um, and then the question shifted. Th- then the question became, James, when are you going to write something? You know, it was very odd <laughs> that I would just be returning, returning, you know, week after week, month after month and not having, you know, aside from field notes, which were really just for me, um, you know, would not have written anything yet. You know, this was very odd to them. Uh, and so I, you know, over and over again would sort of explain, well, here's the, you know, here's the idea for the book and, um, you know, timeline, here's kind of my best estimate, you know, but again, I was speaking years, years away. Um, uh, and, you know, there were another, I think a story I don't tell in the book actually, um, there was uh you know, there was a moment when, say other and this happened several times actually, uh, but one time I remember clearly because I, I had this follow-up email exchange um with uh this was the the kind of the main gatekeeper, the CEO of the ARC project. Um so we were sitting in the in the main boardroom and it was myself and and him and the creative director and uh some other officials from the ministry showed up. I think they were sort of like marketing people. And we were all kind of having a conversation and, uh, Mike tried to introduce me, uh, <laughs> and, uh, he, and he said, James, James just kind of hangs around, you know, and he sort of laughed it off. Uh, and, but there was an awkward moment, you know, there was an awkward moment where he didn't know how to introduce me. Um, and, and he sort of laughed it off and they laughed it off and, and I didn't know what to say other than kind of laugh it off. Um. And then, but so later in the day when I got home, I, I sent, sent him an email and I said, you know, I, I hope that wasn't awkward for you. Um, in the future, if you want a quick kind of, you know, one sentence presentation of me, maybe you could use something like this. And I, sent, and I kind of spelled it out in the email uh, of how he might present me. You know, James is an anthropologist, yada, yada, from Miami University. Um he's interested in in understanding the creation of the park. Uh and he's uh you know, hoping to hoping to follow it until it opens, you know, or something I forget exactly verbatim what it was, but it was something along those lines. Very quick, one, two sentences, you know, here's who he is. And Mike, you know, sent me a nice email back and he was like, Well, you know, um it's okay. You know, the, it didn't really matter uh for those folks. Uh and um I you know, I appreciate your email, but you know, don't worry about it. Basically, what he said. <laughs> so, so there were moments like that throughout the fieldwork where you know the kind of you know uh, you know their understanding of my presence definitely changed. Did it ever kind of fully you know um, articulate with 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 how I would articulate my presence? I, I don't know, um, but it was definitely uh, something that shaped the fieldwork.
1: Great, thank you. And and so one of the things, uh, you know, the one that ethnographic opportunities, I suppose, that Ark Encounter uh, provided as a field site was bringing together um, sort of different combinations of, of sort of concepts um, or parts of, of, of life in the US um, that people might not ordinarily see come together. And in the first chapter of the book, uh, you've called this the power of entertainment. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so one of the kind of nice. Uh, points of comp- contrast in the book is between um uh, religion and entertainment um two things that you know obviously have lots of connections but maybe we quite often don't think of them as connected um could you could you say a little bit about that please
0: yeah for sure i mean for me this is this is really at the center of the book um so so folks in uh scholars in american religious history know very well you know the deeply entangled ways in which um American religion in particular, American Christianity, uh, has, has taken shape alongside and in tandem with different forms of, of entertainment, um, you know, back to, you know, George, George Whitfield and, you know, the theatrical preaching style, you know, and sort of, you can just sort of name off examples up through the, up through the decades and centuries. Um, you know, that, that's a, that's a really well, in a sense, told story, um, you know, many different expressions and there's, and there's more to tell, but, you know, the fact that that's a, a narrative, um, is, is really well identified, uh, in American religious history. Um, but when you, when you get to, uh, sort of contemporary American society, uh, I, I don't know that, that, that narrative is a, is as well, you know, defined. And so, um, that was one thing I wanted to do in the book. And hopefully one contribution of the book is to, is to give at and articulation of how uh, religion and entertainment are intertwined with one another, and hopefully a model for how to study it. Um, and I think, when possible, it's not always possible, but when possible, to trace out the processes of production. Um, you know, this is this is incredibly valuable, um, and we can learn a lot from kind of viewing things from the inside out uh, and getting uh, to these kind of backstage um, places. Um, uh to to look at production
1: that's that sounds great and i was wondering um you know given that to a lot of people who are who are listening or reading this combination uh seems unusual when you were thinking about your research both while you were doing it and when you were writing up um how do you think your sort of experiences with this particular topic um made you question how we understand entertainment or leisure as concepts within anthropology and other social sciences?
0: Yeah, yeah, good. Thank you. Um, I'll, 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 hopefully, I can kind of circle back around to that, um, you know, picking up from the last question. So, um, I- you know, in the same way that I think it's important to sort of define up front, you know, what we mean by, say, creationists, right? Um, that we're talking about a very particular form of of young earth creationism um, that's wedded to Protestant fundamentalism. Um, at the same time, to be clear about what do we mean by entertainment? And, and I'm really indebted here to Peter Stromberg's work um, – his book, Caught in Play, was for me a really touchstone uh, reference uh, throughout the the analysis process and the writing process uh, and the fieldwork process. Uh, and so his his view of entertainment is this uh, is is this activity where we uh, are able to kind of be immersed uh, into um, some a kind of a frame of role play, uh, and and this takes all kinds of forms. You know, it it's sort of this, is is it, it it takes a really formalized. Um, uh or it appears in a really formalized expression in things like role-playing games but uh the insight in his book is that you know the that kind of activity of immersive role play actually happens in all kinds of aspects uh, of our life um contemporary american life uh, and really global life um and we can sort of you know see the the um uh, the appearance of that, uh, through the influence of, of, uh, really industry powerhouses like Disney and Hollywood. And so for me, I have to say, right. You know, so, so I knew that, you know, once, once I sort of got onto the entertainment thread, you know, all of that started to come together. But when I first started the projects, I didn't know that that was going to be, you know, a central framework, uh, at all. Um, you know, I knew that, that they, identified arc Encounter as a theme park. Um, But thinking about that as a cultural category, um, you know, I didn't want to sort of presume that it entailed certain things. You know, I didn't want to presume that it would look like Disney exactly. Um, But so, 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 the attention to entertainment really emerged from the fieldwork itself and from the design team. So um, as I got to know them, I learned uh, really quickly that um, Disney in particular was a really important reference for them. Um, they were huge fans of Disney. Um, they looked up to Disney as a standard bearer, right? Not necessarily the, the content, um, but as a form. Uh, And as a style and as a strategy and as an approach to engaging people, Um, they saw uh, Disney as a standard bearer and they thought of themselves as imagineers, um, borrowing a term from Disney. Uh, And so thinking about immersive strategies um, and ways to um, create a world that you can draw visitors into, you know, this was, this was constant. They were constantly talking about this sort of thing. Um, it, it was, it was really the, the main thing that they talked about was how they were going to pull this off, you know, how they were going to create a world, how they were going to immerse people, um, how it was going to be engaging for visitors in these terms. And so, um, you know, listening to them really drew me to, uh, the question of entertainment. So, uh, Hopefully that sort of finishes out the, the previous question. Now, how, how does this, um, you know, speak back to, um, anthropological understandings of entertainment, uh, and, and leisure? Um, you know, I think, I think one thing the book has to say, um, is, and maybe this won't be too surprising to folks, but I think it's really important that, um, you know, these kind of spheres of activity, um, I'll put it this way. So, you know, spheres of activity like devotion, um, or worship or, um, religious teaching, uh, or for that matter, kind of political subjectivation, um, and l- leisure fun, um, are not, nece- they don't, they're not necessarily separate, you know, that they can happen together and they often do happen together. And so when visitors, go to Ark Encounter. Um, and I'm speaking now of creationist visitors. Um, they are both having fun together and they are, you know, continuing their, their, um, commitment to particular theology a particular, um, kind of politics, uh, particular worldview. Uh, and so, uh, the book really tries to think about these things as always happening together, always entangled, um, and and why that's why that's sort of compelling for people so hopefully does that that answer your question a little bit maybe you could is there some follow-up there that that you want to ask
1: well Well, that's perfect because that sort of connects to chapter two, which you've called Materialising the Bible. And, you know, I think just then in your answer, you mentioned about the sort of cultural categories that people use when thinking about, uh, you know, aspects of of, of religious life or any other aspect of life. And one of the things, uh, you know, I took it as a reader that you were doing in Materialising the Bible, um, chapter two, was thinking about what other things um, Ark Encounter might be like as a theme park. So, so one of the uh, points of sort of comparison are creation museums, for example. Right. Um, but then you, you also mention, um, you know, obviously it, it, more in passing to something like the Mel Gibson film, The Passion of the Christ. Um, so these sort of, you know, what, what on a sort of Venn diagram, what does Ark encounter, um, what does it look like and what is it a little bit different
0: from? Oh yeah, that's Um, a great question. I should have I should have included a diagram in the chapter.
1: (laughs) Maybe there's a second edition I can come
0: up with a good diagram. It's a good idea. Um, So yeah, the the impetus for this 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 chapter kind of has its own story to it. This chapter was not part of the initial plan of the book. Um, So this chapter also emerged from from a fieldwork reality, Um, uh, and so it's worth sort of telling a story. So this kind of again jumps back to the end of the book in the appendix. So, um, I, I did the field work with the creative team and that was really the heart of the project for two and a half years. Um, and then, uh, as I, as I like to say, they, they kind of broke up with me. Um, and that (laughs) happened somewhat unexpectedly. Um, so let's see the easiest way to tell this, um, so Arc Encounter, in many ways, the, the fact that Ark Encounter had trouble raising money probably enabled my field work. So when they first announced the park in December 2010, they had a an opening date of spring 2014 attached to it. And this was on all their promotional materials. You know, I still have early kind of flyers and and stuff that say, you know, coming spring 2014. Um, which would have really meant that they, you know, it was a two year, um, build, um, you know, no matter when they started. Uh, so really they would have broken ground, um, a little over a year, uh, after that press conference. Right. But that didn't happen, of course. Um, and the reason that didn't happen is because they didn't have the the money that they thought they did, um. Or at least they, the fundraising did not materialize as quickly as they thought they thought it would, and so things kind of slowed down. Um, and in many ways, this probably this probably enabled my field work um, because uh, when the money did come through, uh, they made the announcement uh, late February of 2014 that they had the money they needed. Um, and and there, again, sort of a, a, a bureaucratic and and material and political reason why this was necessary um, uh, once. Once they broke ground, construction-wise, their building permit was for two years, and if they didn't finish within that period, they would have to stop um, and reapply uh, for all the permits, um, and of course, pay uh, for all of those permits again. And so, from a financial standpoint, you don't want to do that. Um, from a publicity standpoint, you don't want to have to stop uh, and be kind of halted in, 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 for an indeterminate period. Um, so, so for, for a lot of reasons they needed to have the money all set before they broke ground. And so before those building permits went into place, right? So, uh, late February, 2014, they announced, uh, that they had the money and they were going to be proceeding. And so I started having conversations with the creative director at that point about, you know, I, I, you know, I know that the work dynamic around here is going to change. Things are going to get busier. You know, you're going to start hiring, you know, more artists, um, kind of crank out the work um you know but i don't want my field work to end so how can i continue to be here and and i thought we kind of came to an agreement um but in uh the end of june 2014 um the creative director basically called me into his office and said uh, and his his words were we have to call it quits uh and so there's you know i I still don't know exactly uh why that is um but that that's what happened um there's certainly possibilities that we could we could speculate on um so so anyway so um that left me in a sort of an awkward spot so i had a lot of material but i didn't really have enough material for a book just yet um and so and actually so the 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 original plan of the book was the the um uh the the uh, epilogue was going to be opening day uh and i was going to sort of have some scenes from the opening day um and that was going to be the end of the book uh, and maybe leave readers uh, frustrated because I didn't really go inside too much. Um, so, so the fieldwork ended, and I thought, okay, how can I? You know, what do I do? Do I just write a couple of articles and be done with it and move on to another project? Do I um, try to figure out a way to extend the project so that I I can kind of flesh out a full book? And uh, obviously, I decided on the latter. And so one strategy, this is a really long, long uh, roundabout way to get to this chapter materialized in the Bible. Um, one approach I, I opted for was to think about the Ark encounter in comparative perspective and to say, you know, there's all this hype around this place, you know, $92 million, 800 acres, 500 feet long, you know, all the like the numbers that the ministry likes to use to sort of promote it. Um, um and that are attention grabbing and headline grabbing, um, so it is it is a sort of a you know um, a dramatic project in a lot of ways. But I knew that it wasn't a one of a kind project. You know, I knew that for example, um, there was uh, a Dutch creationist who had built uh, a scale replica of Noah's Ark, which is still in existence uh, and is docked uh, at uh, different ports in the Netherlands uh, at different times of the year. Um, actually, I think it travels around to different. Parts of Western Europe throughout the year, um, so I knew it wasn't the only one of its kind. Uh, and then, of course, there was the Creation Museum in Northern Kentucky, and there are so many, you know, um, parallels—not um, not just in terms of the message, but in terms of uh, the the media, uh, in terms of how they were uh, presenting it, you know. Um, these as categories, museum and theme park, um, maybe in, in, a, in a certain kind of imagination, um, we want to treat them as separate, separate um, and different, um, fundamentally different. Um, in the conclusion, I, I uh, referenced this quote from Stephen J. Gould, who who kind of draws on that kind of logic to say that these are really different things and we should keep them separate. Um, not so uh, for this group of creationists. You know, they are perfectly happy to kind of meld them together, right? Um, in terms of the strategies for for making them and, and the kinds of experiences a visitor is going to have at these two places. One's called a theme park, one's called a museum. Um, so they are different physical places, but they meld them together um, in terms of uh, the visitor experience. So so I knew all of those things. And so then I started, the more I started scratching at it, and I really have to, to thank a, a student of mine who was working as a research assistant, Amanda White, who really helped me um uh, expand my thinking and and help me find uh, a lot of um, other attractions. So the more we kind of you know pulled at that thread, the more we found places that self-identified as theme park or as museum or as garden or as shrine or as art environment um, or as grotto, um, any number of self-identifications. But all of them were doing, at a certain level, all of them were doing something similar. Right. So, some were Protestant, some were some were evangelical, some were charismatic, some were Catholic, you know, Roman Catholic. Some were um, kind of public, you know, some were ecumenical, um, right? Um, so they were affiliated uh, differently, um, uh, and certainly some some you know are quite overt in their politics um, and controversial. Others are kind of strictly devotional environments, um, and not maybe all that surprising in terms of the way they look, right? Kind of certain Catholic devotional environments, but all of them. We're we're doing something similar, which is what I ended up, um, I I kind of ended up phrasing as transforming the written words of scripture into an experiential choreographed environment. Um, That is, they materialize the Bible, right? They turn the the text and the stories into places uh, that you can go to. And so I thought, well, maybe it's worth kind of writing that out in a way. Um, and I should also say that this, this really happened in tandem with building the digital scholarship project of the same name, materialized in the Bible um, that we continue to uh, try to update and refine. Um, um, so so this chapter emerged from that kind of fieldwork reality um, and it emerged from the attempt to think about the Ark not just in terms of a creationist project of, of, of religious publicity, but, also as a, um, an attraction that was, that was engaged in a, in a phenomenon materialized in the Bible. Uh, and so the chapter tries to kind of work through the different expressions of that, um, you know, how, how they work from similar strategies, how they, you know, kind of differ from each other in some ways. Um, but, um, when we look at them as a group, what do we see?
1: brilliant and can i ask um, who who was the sort of imagined visitor uh for the people who were who were planning the ark encounter you know you you sort of touched upon how they touch upon uh disney for example mm-hmm. and in the kind of cultural imaginary around disney and theme parks more generally but also you know actually museums uh too uh, we quite often picture uh families and children um Right. Who, who were these people who, who, who was seen to be visiting? Was it, was it people who, uh, you know, had, had sort of creationist belief already? Uh, was it families? Was it, uh, you know, adults who, who, who were they thinking would, would visit?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. So, um, the team constantly talked about visitors, um, uh, and what visitors were going to want and what visitors expect, and what visitors need. Right. Um, but they didn't just talk generically as visitors. So they, uh, and they never sort of, you know, charted this out in terms of there were these four sets of people. But by my analysis, you know, I, I, I heard them talking about four distinct groups. Um, and so the the group, one group was certainly creationist and creationist families. Um, and, and, creating a place that was uh, in a sense kind of fun for all ages um, was always a goal, which is certainly consistent with the, the modern genre of theme park um, as well as the modern genre of, of public museum. Um, so that was, that was an audience that was, that was a, a group of visitors that they were, that they knew they could count on really, you know, that they kind of assumed would come and um, hoped would be, would, would enjoy themselves, you know, and would gain something that they say didn't gain from the creation museum. So, so that was, that was one audience, but they really, they didn't talk about them a lot, you know, uh, they were present in their, in their thinking. And then another group of visitors was kind of, um, um, you know, sort of like nominal Christians, basically people, well, I shouldn't, let me, let me walk that back. Not, not nominal Christians. Um, Non creationist Christians, right? So people who go to church, people who self-identify as Christian, people who um, just aren't creationists, um, and so this was an audience that they talked about a little bit more, um, and and certainly was an audience they say they would say you know are in need of coming to the park, but again, not not the most prevalent. Uh, then a the third audience, uh, again, not the most prevalent, uh, kind of um, you know. People who were for lack of a better term, maybe spiritual seekers, you know, people who did not did not did not identify as Christian, um, um or maybe sort of thought of themselves as kind of, you know, culturally Christian uh, in some sort of way, um, but didn't didn't go to church, you know, not particularly theologically literate, um, but were interested. Right. But were interested. So they, you know, they figured they would come and they talked about them a little bit, but not so much. The fourth group, the fourth audience, the fourth kind of visitor that they expected would come, and that they talked the most about, uh, in many ways that they obsessed over, uh, were in various terms atheists. Uh, again, these are their terms: atheists, skeptic, secularist. Um, you know, people that they consider as hostile to them, uh, really their kind of other capital O other. Um, you know they, and I, I, I do some analysis of this uh, in chapter one. Um, oh no, sorry, I guess that's chapter three, uh, the cultural produ- producers chapter. Um, they they kind of do this this thing that linguistic anthropologists call constructed dialogue, um, where they're kind of voicing this audience uh, among themselves, right? So they're not, you know, they didn't have any atheist skeptics, um, you know, secular people in the room, but they were giving voice to them. They were saying, you know when an atheist comes, here's what they're going to see, here's what they're going to say, here's what, you know, um, you know, you know, when they're when they're standing in front of this exhibit, um, here's what they're going to be looking at, right? And so they were constantly voicing uh, this audience, in an imagined way, of course, you know, not drawing on actual uh, uh, conversations with with atheists. Um, uh, which of course they they could have right I mean they you know at that point the Creation Museum uh, had been open uh, for a number of years uh, and there's plenty of you know there's plenty of media out there where where you know atheists kind of organize a trip uh, but but and I'm 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 probably not going to write this but somebody needs to write this sort of the you know the the genre of uh, atheists going to fundamentalist attractions to mock it right? Um, cause you, you know, punch, punch, punch creation museum into YouTube and you don't have to scroll down very long before you find videos of just this, you know, of people filming themselves on site, um, and kind of, you know, having a go, uh, at, at, at the place. Um, so somebody needs to do an analysis of that, of that, uh, genre <laughs> of, of visitor engagement. Um, it probably won't be me though at this point. Um, so, so, anyway, it's a long answer to your question um you know that that audience was the one that they kind of obsessed over the most um and that figured into their design choices, which f- for me ultimately was sort of the most fascinating observation
1: that is fascinating and and, and um, that was sort of a good a good link there for me because I was thinking about um you know especially in your chapter chapter three it 's called Cultural Producers. One of the things that your book 's doing is giving some really evocative accounts of this as a workplace you know it 's in part I guess a sort of a workplace um, ethnography of people who work in an office yeah. and um, and you know uh, they're kind of you know it doesn 't really matter uh, to some extent what the office is is doing. There are certain things that are just kind of office culture. Hmm that are, that are uh, you know not even uh, go across uh, different industries but 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 are pretty uh, sort of international as well um, you provide a photo I think of, of the, the the design office but could you say a little bit more about what the sort of atmosphere uh, was there um, you've talked a little bit about how uh, your fieldwork was kind of enabled by um, or facilitated by um, the some of the kind of waiting around at some points that the people who worked for the Ark Encounter had to go through. Uh, could you just describe a little bit more of the, the space and what the, the people you, you worked with there were up to?
0: Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Uh, it's really, really generous of you to describe it as evocative because I, I kind of wonder, uh, and in some ways this was intentional, you know, to be a boring uh, portrait, <laughs> <laughs> uh, because there were plenty of moments of boredom, um, both for me and, and for them. Um, so it was a rented space. So, so just to situate the listeners uh, to the interview, um, the, the design studio was not on the grounds of the creation museum and it was not on the grounds of the future arc encounter. It was in a rented, um, a uh, rented warehouse space. Um, you know, I, a couple doors down was an Amazon fulfillment center. You know, um, it's in a kind of a, I think it would, I think it, I think it calls itself a global office park or something like that. Um, and it's pretty near the Cincinnati, Northern Kentucky airport. Um, and they were there. Um, they, they, they moved in there, um, in early 2011. So, so when I first arrived, they had been there less than a year and, you know, it was this kind of, uh, once you got inside, you know, the boardroom had windows cause it was facing the parking lot, but the main design studio space where the image that you referenced comes from, uh, was kind of this windowless space, fairly low ceiling, you know, polished concrete floors with movable cubicles set up. Um, it, um, you know, it, (laughs) in the same way that I've never been to a design, I had never been to a design studio before I've never worked. I had never worked and I still haven't um, worked in a cubicle before. So it was all kind of new to me in a way. Um, but of course they made the space their own in so many ways, you know, so the concept art that I referenced that was everywhere, you know, um, this was a way of them not, you know, they weren't decorating, but it was a kind of decoration. Um, and it was a way of just sort of them inhabiting the space. Um, so on the one hand, it was this sort of somewhat drab, somewhat boring, somewhat plain cubicle office space, you know. Uh, and I can't say that phrase without thinking about the movie. Um, <laughs> uh, on the other hand, it was, yeah, it was an incredibly lived in space um, that really reflected them and their process, Um and so I, I think I nod to this in the book, but I could always tell when an artist had moved from one project to the next because all of the art hanging up in their cubicle will have changed. So they sort of surround themselves with the art that they were in, that was in progress. Um, now, there were a few pieces that stayed up the whole time you know, that they just liked. Um, but for the most part, their cubicles really visually, dramatically changed every time they moved to a new uh, project, uh, which was fascinating. Uh, and then you had all these kind of, you know, pinned up quotes uh, all around, um, uh, you know, that, that were meant to inspire, that were meant to kind of reflect uh, core aspects of their process. So one of them that I share uh, uh, in the book is was a hand-drawn sign that one of the artists had put up. Uh, uh, and it was, um, I can actually probably, if I find it in the introduction here, I can I can recall it verbatim or read it verbatim. Um, I guess I can't recall it verbatim, which is why I'm looking it up. Uh, so so um, let's see. Where are you? Here you go. So it says entertainment minus truth equals bad, empty fun, vanity. Entertainment plus truth equals teaching, feaking. Disney is safe. Reputation. Disney has money. I'm just a witness of truth. I mean, so it almost reads like a poem. Well, um, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, I, I sort of performed that a little bit. Um, but, you know, it was written out, you know, in this form, kind of a metered line form. Um, and it really reads like a poem. Um, and there it was. It stayed there the entire, you know, time of my two and a half year stretch of fieldwork. Um, uh so, so you know, bits like that were really all throughout the, the office space. Um, so, yeah, I think that on the surface, you know, it sort of seems like this kind of drab, boring cubicle space. But um, there, was, there was so much going on there that was a kind of an immediate reflection of them. And I have to say, methodologically, this was very handy uh, because you were basically surrounded by um, elicitation tools. You were surrounded by things that you could just point to and say, so tell me about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and all of these were really wonderful ways to start a, an informal interview or, or, or um, to kind of draw into a semi-structured interview. So, you know, me interacting with the space was something methodologically that I didn't expect, but that turned out to be a wonderfully rich resource
1: and how how did can i ask it so how did you know when was a good time to ask somebody a question i can imagine it was a bit awkward <laughs> sometimes you know if you're one of the things about is if you're doing a research in someone's workspace as you know you're interested in what they're doing while they're at work but you also uh, have to try and gauge when they're kind of too busy to have you be involved um, or or maybe that wasn't your experience how did how did that work
0: yeah no that's precisely right so i mean one of one of the only conditions i was given up front about you know having having access for this fieldwork was that i couldn't be a disturbance um, i couldn't get in the way of the process and i said okay i'll do my best um, and so i was very cautious all along of um, being in the way of of being a nuisance being a pest um, and so i tried to find moments you know, regular moments where I could engage people in, in conversation that wasn't a total departure from the work they were doing. So, you know, an easy example is lunch, you know. So everybody stopped to eat lunch. I mean every now and again they would kind of do a working lunch where they would sit at their desk and, and eat. But for the most part they stopped and they and they ate, uh, and they usually ate together. And so this was a perfect time for me to um, sit with them and, you know, get to know them, just sort of build relationships ethnographically, um, but also to follow up on things that I had been taking note of. Um, and we, we usually stayed on site for lunch. They had a small, um, cafeteria, not cafeteria, but sort of a small, small lunch space with like a hot plate and a fridge and whatever. Um, And then sometimes we went offsite, you know, there was a Mexican restaurant nearby, um, that they liked to go to. There was a, actually one of the best sushi restaurants, uh, in the whole Cincinnati region is not too far from them because there's a, um, at least as the story goes, there's a Toyota office, uh, right near the airport. And so they uh, flew in, uh, sushi chefs from, from Japan, um, to have, uh, handy. So we would go, we would go there. Um, so lunch was an easy example, um, other, but other ones,, yeah, I kind of had to learn, and, and they were narrower opportunities, but still fruitful. So you know uh, moving from one part of the design studio to another, you know, kind of walking um, you know that was perfect, right? We would kind of walk together and I would ask them a few follow-up questions. Um, as it turns out, you know, uh, the kind of computer files they were working with were huge. Uh, and so it took a long time often for them to save, uh, and for them to back up to the server. And so these were, these created kind of really opportune moments to ask follow-up questions. Um, <laughs> so as we were kind of sitting, waiting for a file to save, um, printing, same thing. Uh, if they wanted to print off, you know, a version black and white or color version of what they were working on to, to show up, show one of the team members or to just kind of have in front of them, uh, to pin up on the cub- cubicle wall, whatever. Um, you know it took a, it took a few minutes for things to print uh, often, and so that pr- provided a nice little moment. Um, so um, it, it was it was you know that was part of the field work for sure, was learning those kind of routines where there were small spaces where I could kind of jump in um, uh, and try to avoid being a nuisance.
1: The image that comes to mind is, is like in the in the West Wing, where uh, the president's aides have to try and sort of accompany him down corridors and things between meetings in order to. <laughs> no,
0: that's right. <laughs> get some yeah, it was just it alone. was just a less like sort of uh, articulate version of the West Wing. <laughs> mainly on my part.
1: <laughs> did they? Can I? Did they ever ask you what you what you thought of any of their plans or designs or? Or anything at all, really? Or was it all kind of understood as being you were learning
0: uh, from them? Oh, yeah. That's a good question. So, um, you know, uh, not regularly, but certainly a few times. um, Periodically, maybe would be a good way to say it. So periodically, they would kind of draw me into their process by kind of treating me as like a generic visitor. Um, n- not as a representative of one of those four groups that i that I sketched out earlier, but just as you know kind of a generic visitor um what would I think you know what would i how would I respond? It never went on too long, like they never kind of really interviewed me per se. Um, you know, they never, they never wanted to know too, too much, um, about my, how I would engage, you know, an exhibit, uh, or move through a space, but they did draw me in at times to ask me those sorts of things, which was always interesting. Um, um, for the most part though, um, yeah, I was sort of treated as somebody who didn't, who was, who was trying to learn their world, but didn't really know it yet. Um, and, uh, therefore I wouldn't have a whole lot to offer (laughs) (laughs) very <laughs> <Fair
1: enough. laughs> Um you've you've sort of alluded to to this little bit already especially like you say through the sort of um four categories um that, that some of the, the design team used to think with whilst making their um, plans. Um but in the next chapter which you've called conversion as play, um maybe the best way to talk about this one would be um for you to explain if possible uh you know what you mean or what they meant by conversion as play.
0: Right. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, not a, that's, that, that's a phrase of mine, not, not a phrase of theirs. Um, you know, they – so conversion for them, you know, uh, you know definitely meant – you know, they hoped and they expected in many ways Ark encounter to serve as a, you know, kind of a lightning rod of conversion for people, right? conversion to Christianity. For people, so people who did not identify as Christians to come to Ark Encounter and maybe not on the spot per se, um, but uh, to to plant a seed, right? We can sort of think about it as a as a ninety two million dollar seed planting ministry, Um, you know, to people for people to come to be impacted uh, and to, you know. Start going to church again. To start, tr- start reading their Bible again. To investigate, you know, uh, as as they might say, to investigate the question of, of you know creation. Um, you know, they and then from that, for people to convert to Christianity, right? And 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 um, you know, so that they they absolutely hoped for that, talked about that, and expected that to a degree. They also hoped and talked and expected for people who who did self identify as christian but not as creationist to come and be swayed to creationism um to say hey you know um again this, you know borrowing their strategy of, of voicing uh, on behalf of people um to say hey you know i totally misunderstood this whole question about creationism you know i need to i need to reinvestigate that or i need to spend more time thinking about that you know um they they expected that they 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 certainly um, saw that as as something that was going to happen. Um, so that's what they mean: um, conversion to to Christianity and conversion to creationism. Um, now, for me, ultimately, one of the primary strategies for doing so was to create a world that people could play in, and and by play I mean to kind of. Um, be immersed and role play in this different frame of reality Right to role play in a literalist creationist past where you know the earth is roughly six to 10,000 years old, where a global flood uh, destroyed uh, everyone on earth, except for eight people, Noah, his wife, their three sons and their wives from those eight people. All of us are now descendants. A world where humans and dinosaurs coexisted. Um, a, a world where humans lived to nearly a thousand years old. Um, you know th- that they wanted to create a, a glimpse of this world to give you a sort of a replicated experience of this world to immerse you into it and to invite you to sort of play along, you know, to give it a shot, to uh, think in their terms. To use their language to um, envision the past as they envision it, um, and their their wager is that if you if a visitor does that, then they will be swayed.
1: And this and this maybe maybe we could look at this chapter. Uh, sort of in connection with the the next one the past is not history because some of these these themes of course are sort of um yes well obviously overlapping so you're you're asking in in um, the past is not history um how um the team members uh work to to sort of create create a creationist way of recreating the past Mm -hmm. to use the word (laughs) create or the stem create a lot um could you could you obviously that's a very sort of complicated uh question um how creationism works and especially how it works in relation to um evolutionary science right but uh, could you could you talk a little bit about um uh, again you know without wanting to give you too much to do uh, about the sort of debate here and then how your uh, research participants responded to this debate uh, in relation to the, the Ark encounter
0: yeah no i think that's a great really reading of the book to, to sort of see these two chapters as not just kind of sequentially following each other, but to really, you know, chapter five, the past is not history really does, you know, extend the discussion of chapter four conversion as play. Um, and it really, it really does kind of pick up where, you know, chapter five picks up where chapter four leaves off. And, and in many ways it, it sort of gives a, a really close case study because I follow the production of of one exhibit at the for the Creation Museum, this is while they were waiting for the the funding to come through for Arc Encounter. Um, Whereas, you know, the ch- chapter four conversion is play, you know, touches on a lot of their you know early early design work in Arc Encounter, but doesn't spend too too long on any one exhibit. And so, chapter five gives that longer kind of case study uh, view. Um, so, I think that's a really thank thank you for for picking that up in the book. Um, Yeah. I mean, the, the primary antagonist, you know, for creationism is evolutionary science, right? That's, that's well, well known. Um, and it was something that, that, you know, I took into the project, you know, kind of knowing that and and wondering how that would be expressed. Um, and it's something they talked about, you know, they, they referenced their kind of antagonist of evolutionary science quite a bit. Um, But, um, you know, part, part of the, the point of the book is to say, um, you know, who are, who are creationists outside of that particular dynamic? Um, mm-hmm. Now, on the one hand, that's a silly question, because, you know, there is no creationism outside of that particular dynamic. But the, but in, in this case, you know, who creationists are and the cultural project that they were engaged in did require thinking in other terms, right? Because if you just think in terms of the relationship between creationism and evolutionary science, you don't have access, for example, to how they engage Disney, um, how categories the categories of immersion and world building are a central part of what they were doing, right? So that, that, that's really what I meant by um, wanting to present an, an alternative analytic frame of religion and entertainment To complement the work uh that's been done on within the frame of religion and science right not not certainly not wanting to say that we shouldn't think about creationism with respect to evolutionary science absolutely not we have to um but to try to complicate the picture some um and hopefully make it more robust um and so, in chapter five, um, you know, this is this is where this is you know the, the exhibit that I look at is um, their creation of what's called Dragon Legends at the Creation Museum, and this is um, uh, really just sort of a series of displays that are that are hanging on the wall that um, a visitor walks through. It's actually in the opening portico area before you go into the main Creation Museum exhibit display. So it's really sort of the first thing a visitor would encounter aside from the parking lot or the exterior of the building. Um, And so um, it's the, it's the creationist argument for why uh, humans and dinosaurs coexisted. you know, kind of an elaborate version of it Um, aside from just sort of proof texting, you know, the the scriptural verses that they wanted to proof text or want to proof text. Um, It's sort of trying to draw a visitor into why, you know, why they see their argument as working and hanging together. Um, And so of course here, you know, they're, they're kind of, they, whether it's explicitly referenced or not, you know, constantly in the backdrop is their antagonism with a scientific view of the past um, and a scientific view of history. Um, And in particular, um, an evolutionary science view of the past. So um, yeah, I mean, it, you know that that dynamic was always there um, in both their making of it and in my analysis of it, um, and I guess the yeah the key the key kind of you know it, issue that this chapter kind of tries to grapple with is the fact that, uh, and this is of course you know anthropologists and, and and other scholars have have been grappling this for for a long time you know any any study of, of cultural memory is doing this um is to say that hey you know there's a difference between what happened and what people say happened <laughs> and mm-hmm. more to the point how people talk about and perform what happened um so the production of history um, is always um, you know grounded in narrative and um uh ideology and um you know the present for that matter so um yeah the past is not history
1: brilliant and and um the the next chapter that follows on from this uh walking poetics of fate so some of the things that are at stake here um, as i read it were um you know the sort of aesthetic um uh perspectives on the arc encounter and uh, judgments of taste and um some of the what the, the 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 sort of theorists or thinkers you refer to is uh david morgan and his um work on the gaze mm-hmm. um could you say a little bit more about this
0: yeah for sure so again this much like um Chapter two materialized in the Bible. Chapter six, a walking poetics of faith, was not part of the original plan of the book. The original plan of the book was to have a short epilogue called Opening Day. Um, now, in the end, I'm really glad that, the, that my, my first plan failed. <laughs> 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 I, I think this is a, a, a better book concept um, to, to have this kind of closing chapter. I mean, so hopefully, part of the reading experience, you know if people sort of read through chapter by chapter is to kind of build toward this anticip- and have this anticipation of, okay, so what is it like on board? You know, so what are, what are the exhibits and what does it feel like? And you know, what is there, right? You've given all this backstage stuff, take us into the front stage. Right. Um, so hopefully that's part of the reading experience. Um, of course, nothing stopping a reader from just skipping for chapter six, but I advise, I advise readers not to do that, right? You really spoil the fun if you do that.
1: Well, it is, sorry, just just to interrupt as well, just to say to, to listeners that so one of the things that's nice is you, you uh, start chapter six by, uh, you know, showing some of the anticipation that you had having made quite a, um, a long journey from your home. And, uh, you know you you had some of the similar questions that visitors uh you know visitors uh who were there for for leisure or entertainment would have about what it would be like and uh you say you know will the food be any good which is always an important question
0: <laughs> right yeah yeah, yeah, Oh, good I'm glad that I'm glad that that resonated for you um so yeah so so just in general right that the 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 point of the chapter is to is to to go inside and to go on board uh and to um see. What what the finished product, or at least the, the the first version of the finished product. Of course, it's always it's always in process. You know, even um, even you know. So I've been at this point now. You know, the book is has been out, of course, for a couple months, um, and it's been and it's been out of my hands for much longer than that. Um, with being in production, you know, I've been to the Ark Encounter, um, I think seven times now, um, and I wrote the chapter after um, two visits. Um, so, you know, things have changed, right? They've added things, um, and they've made adjustments. And so, I mean, everything that's there, I think still holds. Um, I don't think I'd talk about anything that is just not there anymore, but, um, you know, I, I would have, you know, maybe, maybe included some things after, after visit seven that I didn't include after visit two. So anyway, you know, but the first version of the finished product, right. That's the point of the chapter. Um, and analytically, right, the chapter really uh, tries to engage questions that are of interest to scholars of material religion in particular. And so this is where the um, reliance on some of David Morgan's work comes in, which was incredibly helpful um, and really instrumental uh, for my thinking. But also, um, you know, other, other scholars of material religion, you know, folks like uh, Birgit Meyer um, uh, and a number of others. Um, so um, the chapter kind of em- emerge, you know, enters into that that kind of scholarly field, uh, and really, you know, takes up questions of the sensory experience, you know, the bodily experience. Um, not, not to say of course, that, that all bodies would experience it in the same way, but what are the, what's the choreography of the place? You know, what are the designers putting out there? You know, how are they kind of setting the stage for there to be a range of sensory experiences and a range of bodily experiences? Um, and really that, that term choreography is one that – it's one that I, I stumbled on. Um, someone used it. It was, it was in an article in Biblical Gardens, and they kind of used it in a, in a somewhat offhand way, but I thought it really captured nicely something that I was trying to get at, um, which was the production of the space uh, and how the designers wanted people to move through it uh, and wanted people wanted, – they wanted to orchestrate you know uh a series of experiences and so i end up uh, relying on that term choreography quite a bit um because it might throw people initially right we we don't normally associate choreography with um this kind of uh experience so um and then uh yeah so so that was sort of the the analytical approach in the chapter um and then the, the title is sort of a riff on um susan harding's work you know her you know really well-known book, the book of Jerry Falwell, which came out in 2000. Um, and I think holds up incredibly well over time. Um, and I, I relied on quite a bit um, throughout the book, but in this chapter, especially, you know, she talks about how Jerry Falwell, you know, the verbal art of Jerry Falwell is, a, is, is working on what she calls a poetics of faith, where people are filling in the gaps um, and sort of making him make sense. Um, and so I'm boring that to say that arc encounter, you know the the fundamentalist gaze at arc encounter works because people move through the space and fill in the gaps. Um, hence, a walking poetics of faith. Um, and so, what does that process of of intertextual gap filling look like? Um, uh, and 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 not just not just as a cognitive process or a discursive process, but as a sensory and, and bodily process. Um, so, um, you know, I think there would be another chapter to be written. For example, about how. Um, you know, that kind of mini project I referenced earlier of of atheists uh, or skeptics going to Ark Encounter. You know, what is their um what does their walking poetics look like? You know, walking poetics of skepticism, for example. Um you know, what what does you know people who are sort of kind of just sort of in fact I went with a, uh, a friend of mine, you know, I would say fits this mode. He he somebody he wanted to go to the Creation Museum a number of years ago and we went together and then he wanted to go to Ark Encounter. Um and he, he didn't want to go um because, I mean, he was critical of the place and he's not a creationist, um, I, but he also doesn't identify as Christian. He's just, he, he's a curious guy, you know, he, he wants to know what's out there. He likes to, he went, you know, he, he and his wife went to the Indianapolis 500 because he thought that would be, you know, that's a really important regional cultural experience. We should go, you know? And so he's just that kind of guy. Um, and. I don't suspect he's the only one, you know? Um, and so what is, what is the walking poetics for, for that kind of visitor? So, you know, the chapter really is focused on the creationist visitor, you know, uh, and the fundamentalist Protestant visitor. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, that's really sort of the scope of the chapter is, is kind of moving through the space, asking those kinds of questions. Um, and so trying to keep one eye on the design team still, you know, the makers of the space, one eye on, so in this scenario, I'm going to have three eyes. Uh, so one eye on the, the, the designers of the space, one eye on um, creation's visitors to the space, um, uh, one eye on the space itself.
1: And per- perfect. And, and so, uh, one of the things you, you brought up there to, brings me on to the conclusion. So Susan Harding um, comes up in the conclusion again because one of the things you're discussing is fundamentalism, and uh, you know how how your project um, adds nuance to anthropological understandings of what fundamentalism is, and um, you you use as your subheading um, in the conclusion fundamentalism with uh, you know quote marks or scare quotes or however you want to put it. Yeah. um could you could you say a little bit um about this sort of uh, what you think that the book has sort of contributed to it's a bit of a grand question isn't it what do you think the book has has uh, has contributed though to to understandings of what fundamentalism is in the u s or and or elsewhere
0: yeah no thank you it's a great question <clears throat> um so yeah i mean so in my reading of Harding you know she she's saying that you know the the production of the production of fundamentalism as a category is something that's at stake in her analysis and so um you know Jerry Falwell and and his ministries and the sort of circulating discourse that moves through all those kind of kind of fundamentalist networks that produces fundamentalism in the in the in, in at, at the time of in her ethnographic present you know, the time of her fieldwork in the late 80s, uh, early 90s, mid 90s as well. Um, but going back, right, you know, there's this key historical chapter, um, which was an earlier article um, about the Scopes trial, right, and how the discourse around the Scopes trial produced fundamentalism as a category uh, in our modern imagination. right? And so that's, that's part of the work that the book is doing, is that it's not, uh, it's not merely sort of a, an ethnographic depiction of a, of a people, it's, you know, an ethnographic uh, uh, accounting for how this category has emerged and how it continues to operate. Um, and so I'm, I'm hopefully uh, constructively contributing to that by, by saying, well, what does that look like when we extend to the arc encounter and a creationist theme park? Um, you know, what does that, how does that impact the um, ongoing circulation of the category of of fundamentalism and um, the ongoing cultural work of uh, Protestant fundamentalists in particular. Um, so, in the same way that um, you know, kind of the Scopes trial is this pivotal moment, um, uh, I'm I'm suggesting that the successful opening. And we'll see how eventually successful Ark Encounter is. But the successful opening of Ark Encounter is another kind of pivotal, pivotal moment we can use to uh, think about um, uh, fundamentalism as a category uh, and our representation of it um, uh, and the sort of the social life of uh, fundamentalist Protestants.
1: Great. Thank you so much. And, um, just sort of, uh, by way of, 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 concluding our discussion of the book, um, if this isn't uh, too sort of difficult a question, could I ask, you know, what, but maybe you've already answered this. In fact, uh, what would be your kind of, uh, take home, if you will, that you'd like somebody who was reading this book to get?
0: Oh yeah. That's a, that's a great question. It's uh, a
1: difficult question. I I think. Yeah, I know,
0: right? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's a great, it's, it's the right question to ask. And, um, it, it is some, something I've thought about. Um, and I'm, I, I feel torn, right? I'm sort of pausing because I, I feel torn between a few, a few different takeaways. Um, but for the sake of our conversation, I'll just run with uh, the first, the first one that came to mind, um, which is I, I hope readers walk away um, with an appropriately complicated uh, sense of um, how creationists mobilize entertainment great (laughs) yeah i mean yeah so so yeah that that was a lot of uh, build-up to to a fairly straightforward no
1: no no, (laughs) i think that's a great answer Uh, 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 Could i ask one more sort of uh, nosy question as well um i think you mentioned in the appendix uh, that you hadn't heard anything uh that recently from the the design team um, have you, have you been in touch with anyone from Arc Encounter since your book was published this summer? Uh,
0: no, no, I haven't heard anything. Um, so, you know, after, after, uh, that, that kind of last fieldwork visit in June, 2014, um, I, you know, I sent the team a follow-up, uh, notes just thanking them for their time and, um, you know, just how much I appreciated, you know, their candor and, opening their door to me and, and, and this sort of thing. Uh, and then I kind of left them alone, you know, periodically I would check in with them or try to check in, you know, send an email and, and just ask how things are going. Um, never heard anything back. Uh, I sent an email after I first went to, uh, the park in August of 2016 um, it had been open for about, about six weeks. I was out of the country when it first opened. So I wasn't, I wasn't uh, able to have that opening day experience actually. Um, um, just saying, you know, I saw your imprint on the place, um, you know, walking through it, I could see your signature style, you know, uh, and I kind of made, just gave a, a bit of a recounting about some of my experiences there and the exhibits that stuck out to me. Uh, and that were sort of most memorable. Um, and I didn't hear anything back. And by the way, so I'm sending these emails to the whole team, um, <laughs> that I, that I got to know, not, not only like, not, not a single individual. Um, and then I sent them, uh, a copy of the manuscript. So the same, the same copy that went out to reviewers, um, I sent them a copy of and said, Hey, you know, here it is. Um, there'll be a, a period of time where I'll have an opportunity to make changes, um, based on reviewer comments. And so if you have any feedback for me, mm-hmm. uh, I would like to hear it. Um, and I never heard back. Uh, and then I sent another email <laughs> after i had gotten reviewer comments and I was m- sort of in the final stages of revision. Uh, and I said, you know, I'm I'm kind of at that point where I'm about to, it's about to leave my desk and, uh, it will, you know, I'm, I'll be able to make small changes, but I won't be able to make big changes after this. Um, do you have anything you want to say you know do you have any questions you want to raise anything that's that bothers you in the book anything like that and i never heard anything back so um that's still the case I, st- I still haven't heard anything um so i don't know i hope that you know like any ethnography you know and this will be true you know the uh, other other uh books that i've written and i think uh this is true for most ethnographers i hope the team recognizes themselves in the book um I, I don't, I don't suspect that they would agree with every bit of my analysis or the overarching argument. Maybe, um, you know, there are a couple of moments that are very candid moments, um, where they're, um, uh, debating something among themselves or they are, um, uh, in, should have involved in a, in a kind of critique. Um, you know, there, there, there's, there, there are a few really candid moments that I include in the book. Um, and, um, I, I hope that they feel fairly represented and I feel, I hope that they would rec- recognize themselves in the book. Um, and beyond that, um, I would, I would enjoy talking uh, with them about it and uh, um, uh, going with them, of course, to the park. Uh, but we'll see.
1: Watch this space.
0: <laughs> What's that?
1: Watch this space.
0: Right. That's right. Maybe. Exactly. <laughs> watch this space. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I, I would love to get an email from them, you know, out of the blue one day saying, you know, hey, we read your book. You know, come down and talk to us about it. You know, I I would love to get that email. Um, but again, we'll see. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, James, we've taken up lots of your time. Um, so one final question. I promise this is a final question. Um, could you tell us, please, what you're working on at the moment or what your future plans are?
0: Yeah, thanks. Um, so I'm continuing to work on. You know, I mentioned the Materialize in the Bible digital scholarship project. Um, so I'm continuing to work on that. Um, you know organizing, um, sort of, you know, uh, somewhat virtual tours of different places, um, and dealing with uh, a bunch of archival material related to attractions. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm working on that. Um, that also kind of got me engaged in a, in a smaller ethnographic, um, study of a, of a different attraction that I do mention in chapter two, uh, it's called the garden of hope It's in Covington, Kentucky, just across the river from Cincinnati. Um, a very different kind of place. Um, still arguably uh, certainly an evangelical place, um, and arguably a fundamentalist place, um, but, uh, very different, uh, than Ark encounter. Um, and so I was able to, um, uh, uh, be a participant observer, uh, with tours coming there. And I've gotten to know the, the primary tour guide, um, and the, uh, pastor of the church that, sort of is in charge of the place quite well, um, as well as uh, a lot of archival work on the garden of hope. So, so that's kind of, uh, an ongoing project. Um, and then, uh, to, to do, um, some, some focused analysis on a few other attractions. Um, so for example, uh, the museum of the Bible in Washington, DC, which opened in November of 2017, which also, uh, is heavily, uh, invested in the use of entertainment strategies, um, things like immersion, um, to shape the visitor experience. Um, uh, you know, I see many of the same issues playing out there. Um, and so I'm, I'm quite curious to to do some writing there, um, where creationism and fundamentalism are, are not necessarily the categories at stake, but certainly, uh, public evangelicalism, uh, would be. So, uh, working on an article right now, actually on the museum of the Bible that hopefully, uh, will see the light of day at some point.
1: Great. Okay, well, thank you so much. We'll say goodbye. And uh, thank you so much for a fascinating conversation.
0: Yeah, thank you very much. I really appreciate the opportunity. Uh, Thank you for the great questions. uh, And uh, I look forward to um, hopefully hearing, hearing from some listeners.
1: Brilliant. Thank you, James. Bye bye.
0: Bye bye.